0: Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn. horror still in Amityville. Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes Low be Dog Man, howling in the street. I'm typically skeptic of what I see. Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans. Thunderbird swamp thing. Is it real? I was wondering. Typical. Skeptic show. Typical.
1: Skeptic show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have another fascinating guest with me today. And the, the person I have with uh, me has been uh, a major...
0: Oh, hold but... on, you have to give me permission to record your game.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I'm happy to have everybody here. I have another fascinating guest with me today. Who I have with me is someone who's been a big uh, responsible. He's been responsible for a big part of my awakening and my learning process in ancient history. And who I have with me is Matt LaCroix. Um, he, I consider him one of, the high, one of the most highly looked up to researchers today in, in, as far as like ancient past and esoteric truths, uh, I believe Matt is one of the biggest influencers as far as our ancient past and what really happened ever since his videos like the Anunnaki series he did with Gerald Clark, up until now where he's working with a huge company like Gaia, appearing on shows like Ancient Civilizations. He's the author of two amazing books called The Illusion of Us and The Stage of Time. And I said he's been a major factor in my awakening when I first saw his eagle and the serpent battle video. And that changed everything around for me as far as the way I looked at things. And I want to welcome Matt O'Croix. Matt, thank you for coming on my show. How are you?
0: Hey, Rob, it's great to be here. You and I have been conversing um, through like, messages and emails for a long, long time. And I'm I'm really happy to see that you got... Um, your own channel started. I, I actually remember back in the very beginning when you had told me that you were going to start your own uh, YouTube channel and your own podcast. And so I think that's great that you you, you were uh, motivated enough and driven enough to want to go out and do that and to put the effort in. And now you're blossoming into doing lots of different guests and a lot of people. Um I know you've had some really cool guests on and so I I commend you for that and I think it's a great lesson for a lot of other people that are listening to this that if they're driven and passionate enough you know go start your own channel and and go um you know teach others and the more the more that we can get this message out about you know the potential of who we really are and uh the divine nature of our consciousness and what our origins are and what our hidden history um, from where we came from and all of the things that um, as many many know, are a big part of us redefining our existence here and our definition of who we are. So I love that, Rob. I think that's great, and I um, I'm I'm really glad to be here.
1: Well, one thing that you also said, it wasn't just your videos that caught my attention. It was like when we would converse through email you said never underestimate how much of a creator you are and then you followed that up with when you went on Paul Wallace's show you talked about that we're creator gods and it made me think that you know I think we're here instead of like this nine to five that we're here for like to to be creators of art music podcasts like Etsy stores You, you know like did you ever think your words would reach that many people and like what are your thoughts on that statement?
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that 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 impacted you and that meant something to you. Yeah, I really think that we very, very much live in uh, an illusion of reality. That's why the first book was called The Illusion of Us. This is a reality that's been created, um, probably really defined itself um, during the, the transition of the Roman Empire into the Holy Roman Empire in the Byzantine Empire when they started basically... Uh, redefining and redesigning our idea of where we come from by establishing a narrative of history and then going forward with everything that came after with deciding how reality should go now i don't necessarily blame kingship being lowered in mesopotamia to being defining this false reality we live in now because a lot of those um those moral uh, codes and laws like the famous stele known as the code of hammurabi when it was this handed down set of laws and rules from which society could flourish um that really is the basis for where the 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 10 the commandments out of that Kind of dark figure Moses, which you can check out other shows I've done talking about that figure who was a horrible, horrible person, but that some of those laws those rules that came out of that originated much earlier in the ancient Babylonian and Sumerian civilizations as being looking at the moral laws and rules and the, the ethics for how we can be just we can be great people and and great to each other and how we can look at ourselves as something that's not, that are, that's not animals and killing each other and going after each other, but being co-creators of reality. And that's where, like you just mentioned really ties into the fact that we truly are far more important and sophisticated and, um, a heightened sense of responsibility for our, our, uh, place in this reality than most people realize you know when you your thought processes come up and we just maybe um, act on them and we don't think about how our thoughts really impact reality and how we really are creators here and the future I think is very bright because more and more people all the time are getting off of mainstream when they're starting to learn all about how important and powerful they are their people are starting to to meditate they're starting to you know, read all these incredible things that are changing their mindsets and slowly, but surely we are going into a new paradigm of, of reality. And I think that that's an exciting place to be.
1: Do you think it was encoded in us from the beginning, from the Anunnaki, that we would have these like amazing, like we could have amazing, like psi experiences and out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. And like, do you think that has to do with the way the soul operates and stuff like, and was that in our DNA blueprint from the Anunnaki, maybe?
0: Yeah, one of the things that's echoed in a lot of cuneiform tablets when they discuss um, everything from Adapa to looking at this Untanapishtim Atrahasis figure that we're going to talk about, these perfect beings, it discusses the idea, uh, and especially I think the best place that really, really gets into that, probably of anything, is you actually have to get into the, the Gnostic, Nakamadi, the secret book of John, and looking into um, this the, the discussions of the archons and how our reality here. Because we really are non-physical beings, as in our soul and our consciousness resides in a non-physical place, but we basically incarnate into this body, this, this body temple that most people have forgotten that we need to treat it that way. Because if we do, it allows us to connect to these incredibly higher places that take us on a journey that is really largely called the hero's journey. And the hero's journey can come in many, many, many different forms. Um, But one of the things that's truly the most important thing that comes out of the secret book of John, as well as these cuneiform tablets, is the idea that because we live in a physical world, this physical reality that's around us, which is called the physical plane of reality, that actually has nothing to do with the physical plane of existence, but the non-physical nature of how our reality are layers of different dimensional awarenesses that manifest themselves in these different planes meaning these these higher and lower dimensional um, experiences that we can have, that we can raise ourselves up to reach these heightened states of reality. And because of that, though, it's very easy to lose ourselves here. It's especially with a lot of the things that are bombarding us in television and in media, and in um, even just being raised through generations of if you have parents that don't have any interest in any of this you know they're going to encode this idea of how how reality should be through you as well as going to school which is the ultimate in, indoctrination right now i think the whole entire education system is extremely flawed and it really brings people out of that state of wonder and imagination and discovering the gifts of who they really are and really tries to put them in as almost like a cog in a conformity machine to see if they could just, well, you do this job and you do this job just based on where you go. But the whole concept there that needs to be understood that really has been largely lost is that we have this responsibility here and everyone is on a different path though, but to discover the true nature of who we are. The true nature of the the role we play the roles we play in this reality and the hardest part of that entire thing that illusion that the Gnostics talk about this great illusion that's been created here and a lot of people if you ever look up the Nag Hammadi and the Gnostic illusion of reality you're going to see a, a person stepping into this colorful reality but half of him is still in this other reality. And that's what they essentially talked about is they knew that because of laws and rules and constructs, it's easy for us to lose ourselves and not realize that we're multidimensional beings and creators, but to just think that we're just a a mundane being in a physical reality. And that's where the great trick has been played to basically strip us of our power of being creators and have others create for us. I think that's really the, the lesson that should be learned there. And, you know, right behind me, you mentioned, is it within us to be able to have that inherent ability to break out this banner behind me is is the chakras, the seven chakras within us now that is the ultimate proof that there's something else going on than pure evolution. Because if you had a being that was naturally evolving, why would it have the system within its spinal neural network, energetic network of its body that is in tuned exactly with the vibrational frequency of the seven colors of the visible light spectrum? It's only, The only way you could possibly explain that is, let's say you came here from somewhere else and you saw that the physical reality here was is made up of these constructs and you knew how reality was designed so you design us to basically mimic that but the idea is that we can be stuck in these lower states and never ascend if we don't have the certain means to do that so it really is our own choice what kind of a journey we're going to go on but the blueprint and the path is is there within us it's already been designed within us and the whole purpose of that Is these ancient Sumerian uh, creator gods, like, especially Enki, also known as Ea, they designed that so that we will have, we can have this ability to break out, because it was always known that it would be like being in a prison world if we had no way to get out of it. And that's, that's essentially the escape out of it to reach higher states of consciousness, because then you have an awareness of things you never had all around you. And all of a sudden, everything makes a lot more sense. And you start seeing the universe and the world and our reality a completely different light.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned the myth of Adapa. It says in there specifically, I remember you saying that, that, that he was the wisest of the Anunnaki. How would he be the wisest of the Anunnaki? He's a made being, right? I mean, it's like, it's like they would have had to, it's almost like they made us better than them, right?
0: Well, that's, and that's the most beautiful thing. I mean, isn't that, the, that's the classic story, right? Let's just imagine you were to create um, and let's use the example that we have today. Let's say say you were going to create a, an AI, an artificial tech, uh, artificial being. Now, that's not a perfect way to describe it because that wouldn't necessarily follow the same r- rules and the same morals and the things that we have. But just as an example, let's say you were to create that and that being would end up going on to become or have the potential to be greater than your creator. Your creator, that's the ultimate thing that would be... Um, would be scary to a creator is that something that they created could become more powerful than that than they are but and that's what gets very interesting in these ancient mesopotamian stories and in others other stories around the world that echo something similar is that is that we have this inherent nature within us and this is what adapa was um, and i highly encourage people to read that because it specifically states just like you mentioned that he was the greatest among the Anunnaki. So it just tells us right there, that rather than us seeing ourselves as separate here, we really are these beings that are nothing like anything else on the planet. You know, we maybe have a core of us that resembles like some kind of a a Neanderthal or some of these more primitive type of mammals, but what our true nature is and who we really are is something that is definitely not just a random thing that came out of nowhere we are created in perfection and that's what Adapa is discussed it's discussed in the in the myth of Adapa tablet where he is um, it's talked about that he's the greatest among even his creators and because of that great jealousy arises over um, the fact that this creation could become out of control and could could rule over over its creators and it's decided and we're, we can get into it to destroy what's called the seed of mankind and have it uh, everything completely start over again. And that's something we can, we can get into, but um, people should read those tablets. And I just want to mention in terms of saying that people should read them. We, uh, Billy Carson and I are releasing a major, major project in next month in November, that has been a two year project, biggest project I've ever taken on. Um, that I really think is, is the most important and the, the best work I've done that includes even more ancient texts than the stage of time does. And it walks you through, um, the book is called The Epic of Humanity, and it walks you through our story, but not only in a way where it just tells, I, I present just I present evidence and talk about it, but I have every section where it goes into that. I'll have the best and most important, in my opinion, piece of these ancient texts, like the myth of Adapa, that will talk specifically about who we really are and where we've come from and the strives and the struggles we've gone through these sections in there so it's almost going to be like a reference guide where someone can go back through and be like well i want to go look up where where that is because i want to read it and i don't know where to find it if they're all going to be present in here like this like an ancient history reference guide of the most important text and information that has woven into telling us who we are and explaining who we are. And so th- those are going to be available in a way where I think people will be have like a comprehensive guide that can help guide them to um, understanding who we are and reaching higher States.
1: Oh, I can't wait for it. I think it's going to be amazing. And I think it's great that you're trying to preserve history as compared to, I know you've talked about on other shows, what's happening in Eridu, which is just like a complete shame, right?
0: Yeah, it's, um, and there's a number of other sites um, around the world that are following something similar. And Eridu, of course, I've talked about many, many times, um, like a lot of other ancient cities that are not even being excavated, um, such as Sharupak, which we can talk about as well, which was just started to be excavated and was another project that was abandoned. But Eridu is always mentioned in, in all these tablets as being the first city ever created here by the lowering of kingship of these Anunna. Now, I want to add something to this that's brand new, that I think a lot of people will be really interested in, that I don't even know if, if you're aware of yet. I've been doing a lot of deep research into a completely brand new place that I think most people have probably never heard of. It's called Jiroft. Now, Jiroft is a city in southeast Iran. Okay, ancient Persia. Now Iran has a lot of incredible ancient history sites. Um, Nashi, Rostam and um, Persepolis and all these places has this ancient history that connects back to the Anunnaki that has the same cuneiform writing, and what you find is that they were two civilizations that were coexisting with the ancient Sumerians, the Babylonians, and these Assyrians at the same time. Now here's where it gets really fascinating for those who love to go deep on these tablets. There's a tablet called En-Makar and the Lord of Arata. And there's a couple others as well, but that specific tablet talks all about this land of Arata. Okay. Arata was a place where it was coexisting during the time of Sumer, and that's A-R-A-T-T-A. And that place was never found. It was considered a myth by a lot of Uh, researchers and archaeologists but it was talked about in so many tablets that it it had to have been a real place and it was discussed how it was being um it was being ruled over by another Anuna goddess um known as who became known as Ishtar now that that civilization um is now being called Jiroft J-I-R-O-F-T but that's not what it was originally called Now, the archaeologists have just discovered, in relative terms, have just discovered this site. It was discovered in um, sometime a little bit after the 2000s, 2002, 2003, 2004, and it was only discovered because, and it wasn't because any archaeologists went looking for it or anything. Local people found the site, and they started looting it, and an enormous amount of artifacts went on the black market out of nowhere. I mean, we're talking about one of the largest um, illegal sets of um, black market uh, pillaging that has ever happened in, in a modern history. And what there were so many that were put in the black market that archaeologists and the um, Iranian government started to wonder where they were all coming from. And they traced it back to this area called Jiroft. And they finally went in, they started excavating it. And they found a gigantic ziggurat. And if just like we were mentioned, Eridu, the main temple there was a giant ziggurat, okay, known as the Temple of Absu. That was Enki's primary temple. And when archaeologists were uncovering Giroft, they believe this may be the largest ziggurat ever created in the world, okay? This isn't a simple little location. This may be one of the great new discoveries that will come out of our time to uncover in this area. So essentially what it comes down to is this, and this isn't just me saying this, many, many archaeologists, especially ones that are not funded by outside areas, like some of the interior Iranian archaeologists, are saying that they firmly believe, based on the sophistication of the site, the the description of it that's given in tablets, and and it's Um, proximity to Iraq, that this is the famous land of Arada that is was talked about as being the largest civilization ever in the world that was existing at the same time as the Sumerians. And so that's what's just coming out now that's being discovered in some of the artwork, some of these um, incredible designs that they're finding in pottery, but also in blocks, they're finding cuneiform tablets, as well as incredible pottery and other designs that have been left over from ancient, ancient times, but it's got the level of sophistication is that of Sumer this. And so this is an incredible new discovery. And I, I can't, I can't wait to continue to look more and more into it and learn
1: more about it. You know what I was thinking was Ishtar also Nana because remember you talked yes. about when you went on Paul's show about the Anki and the world order tablet, where it connects Inanna to the Indus Valley. Yes. So Ishtar was also Nana That yes. area is kind of close to the Indus Valley, right? Like that, Persia type area. It's not in the same vicinity, but it's closer. I could see her rolling over that kind of yeah. area, right? Yep.
0: Yeah. In um most people I only mentioned Ishtar because most people are more familiar with that term, but her original name was Inanna. And we have to keep in mind that many of these gods and goddesses in Anuna had multiple different names depending on the civilization that they were in. So yes, <laughs> it, that Giroft was, and it's described in the text that Giroft was. Uh, in this, in Makar, in the Lord of Arada, it's discussed that the Giraf was this, it wasn't called Giraf; it was Arada, of course, but the location today is Giraf. was this the primary city of Inanna that she was ruling over, and what happened in the tablets is they discuss how she, as a patron goddess of the city, decided to leave and rule somewhere else, and when they, and she came actually over to um near Ur and Uruk and, and Eridu. And she ended up ruling in, in that part of the region. And when she did that, it, she no longer was the patron goddess that was protecting that city. And they actually went to war and they went they, they actually had a conflict against one another because of that. But this is what's so um, that amazing that I want people to connect to this. This is the telltale piece. In the Sumerian king list, you can find Enmerkar in that list of kings that was ruling in that region. And and Enmakar was connected as the Lord of Arata to this region. So there was this crossover of some of these kings that at one time, Sumer and Arata were coexisting as as dual empires in that region. And so what we're finding is that that means that that one of those those, um, kings was ruling for thousands of years meaning that it's from this ancient time before we had the, 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 uh, the, the younger lifespans that we have now, that these kings were, had ancient bloodlines connected to the Anuna, And we find that with this region. So we finally have the telltale piece to connect the other ancient land that basically Sumer was connected to Arata and it was connected to Muluha, which is the Indus Valley civilizations. So we now have all the pieces in place to connect um, ancient Sumer, we have ancient Egypt, um, known as Kem. So we have the Sumerians, we have the ancient Kem, we have um, the ancient Persian area, which was the Lord of which was the land of Arata. And then we have Maluha, which is the, the area of India. And what do we find today? Some of the oldest and most ancient civilization structures from India all the way over to that area. And that just shows us that, uh, that none of that was a myth. It's all really part of our past.
1: That's, that's so amazing. That, that, I love how it all ties in together. Now, you wanted to talk about megalithic structures a little bit. I'm not real, I, I'll try to follow you on that. But like, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get into it, though, because I'm really interested.
0: Yeah. Oh. So one, one of the areas that I talk about a lot in the book, and I'm also doing a lot of research in right now, is to prove that this lost aspect of our history existed, we have to look at the sophistication of what was left behind. That's the telltale sign. And I want people to be really careful that just because something looks like something, it may not be that. For instance, be careful with some of these natural structures around the world that we just automatically throw the term megalith at. If those areas geologically and climatologically had ice caps during the last ice age, during the Pleistocene, if they had deep ice, you can't have a civilization that lived there. We have to be careful about where we're throwing these terms megaliths and these ancient civilizations around the world and really look at the difference of what they left behind. But the Dalai
1: telltale is a real megalith, right? What? Baalbek.
0: Oh yeah, of course. Baalbek, Lebanon is the second largest megaliths in the world that come out of that. And that region was part of um, this cross connection between the ancient Sumerians and the ancient Athenians and Atlanteans. They were all existing during similar time periods of history and that uh, the ancient Athenians or the proto-Athenians are one of the new kids in the block you could call it in terms of our area people don't talk about them everybody talks about the Atlanteans but if people go and actually read the Timaeus and Critias it has an entire discussion in there from Solon and the ancient Egyptians that there was a proto-Greek culture that created everything before the, the classical Greeks did that was ruling the Mediterranean. And they were connected all the way over to Baalbek, Lebanon. Now, Baalbek, Lebanon, think of it, if you have the Atlantean civilization and then you have the ancient Athenians and you have the Mediterranean crossing into ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, the area that they would go through would naturally be the area of Baalbek, Lebanon. Now, another one we can add to it that most people probably don't even know about is in Israel, in the western part of the, way of the, western part of the main wall there, the, um, there's, a, there's some gigantic blocks that are over 150 tons that are woven into the structures there. That is another piece of saying, well, look, there was... A, a, a truly ancient civilization that existed there far before the time that we think of as the later Hebrews and the, and the groups that were there um, because we find the telltale evidence left behind of these enormous blocks. So megaliths, and I, be, I want to I get a little bit of a definition in here because when, when a lot of people talk about megalithic structures, a lot of them will be like, we'll point out like Stonehenge or something. Those are monoliths but they're, they're very crude. Okay. They're very crude structures that they were created. Yeah. They had an understanding still of astronomical alignments and solstices and things like that. But, but there's a whole different concept to these ancient megalithic structures that, that I'm talking about these lost civilizations, because the people that build Stonehenge, they came after the younger Dryas catastrophes thousands of years later. And that's why their work is crude. Look at the blocks coming out of Baalbek Lebanon. Look at the blocks Look at the structures in India, these um, like Kalesa Temple and others. And all the way through Egypt, um, the Valley Temple, down to the Osirion, um, and then go across the world to Peru and Bolivia and Easter Island and some parts of Mexico like Mitla. We find these gigantic blocks that are carved either out out of basalt or out of granite, which is so hard that you would have to have highly sophisticated tools to be able to manipulate them meaning that they had to have been created in, in a high level of sophistication that's sometimes sometimes, almost beyond us. They, they were created far before the uh, history books give them credit for, including the Great Pyramids of Giza, which Great Pyramid of Giza, remember, that's two and a half million blocks that averaged almost 10 tons each. Wow. Similar structures that we find in other parts of the world. And the reason why if someone's going to, call me out on why we don't find those in iraq the reason is because those areas that built in those er areas they preferred brick it actually talks about how they laid um, in divine places bricks it was just in their civilization they felt that the bricks had a different kind of energy that they wanted in those in those cultures the problem is Brick doesn't last. So a lot of those are very rough, very crude shape and they're falling apart and decomposing into these giant mountain hillsides that almost look natural, but they're not. Um, and that's the only difference is they didn't have granite. Um, so some civilizations during that time did decide to use something other than granite and, and basalt but the most common um, material used in these giant megaliths was um, granite. And you can find that in like the Great Pyramid of Giza's case, there are gigantic granite blocks that were taken all the way from um aswan egypt hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles that were incorporated into like the the, around the king's chamber in other areas of the pyramids but they also used limestone because different things have different materials limestone is an is is a great insulator for energy and brick actually has its own energetic structure as well you know when you take the, these red uh, sands and in these and the different kinds of elements of the earth and combine them their mindset was always creating these energetic structures around the world so um, where I'm getting at with all this I just wanted to give that as for some people who don't know is that what we're finding now is that when you specifically look at every key place like I just mentioned you look at areas of Peru in Bolivia, look at Egypt, like the unfinished obelisk in Aswan, go look at the Baalbek Lebanon in the quarry, go to Yangshan, China, with the giant stele there, and all the way across the world to Easter Island. What you find is that the civilizations that lived there had reached the height of their sophistication because they were creating the largest by far structures they'd ever created. That obelisk in Egypt and Aswan that was being taken out of the host rock would have been m- more than double the size of any obelisk ever created in the world. The Moai statue in Easter Island that I just shared recently in, in a post that I was talking about, that would have been two and a half times the size of any Moai statue anywhere on the, out of the 400 plus Moai statues that would have been two and a half times the size of any one they had on the island. Okay, go over to China, Yang Shen. We find there was a 16,000 pound, 16,000 ton stele that was about to be incorporated in their structures, would have been the largest single stone ever created, moved, and created into a structure in the world. Same thing at Baalbek, Lebanon. In the quarry, they were taking out these blocks. They were about to take one out that was 12,000 tons. And what happened? 1,200 tons, I'm sorry. 1,200 tons. What happened? Right in the middle of when they were creating the largest structures they've ever created all around the world. These places that are literally each different location around the world, they just vanished. They just disappeared and the the projects were were abandoned. And that really ties into how we, we know that there were catastrophes. When we look at ice core samples, not only during the Younger Dryas, meaning the end of the last ice age, 12,000 years ago, but when Solon Solon met with the temple priests of Sace, Egypt, if you read in the Timaeus and Critias, it says, you Greeks remember one disaster deluge, but there have been many that have come before. So really what we need to wrap our heads around is that some of these civilizations may have even been wiped out by a previous a cycle of disasters even before the younger dryas and how many of of those civilizations have risen up and and been destroyed we don't fully know it's simply whatever survived um, through the sands of time and through all these different um enormous epics of history to get to where we are now so we have to have an open mind to how far back our civilization goes on this planet
1: but How far do you think that is? Do you think your 200,000-year timeline is pretty accurate? I
0: I do, and that's why I, I really try to not be closed-minded, because remember, the ancient Egyptians from say say, you remember one deluge, but there have been many. Now, what does that mean? Think about it for a minute. Well, we'd have to look climatologically. We can take ice cores from Greenland that go up to 30,000 years, but well, we can take ice cores from Antarctica that go 500,000 years. And what we find is that there, these are snapshots of the climate of history, is that there are cycles of catastrophes that have occurred here at these intervals, okay? Now, taking Solon's words from the ancient Egyptians, if there have been many that have come before these catastrophes, then we just look at the ice core samples, we match them up, go back three or four of them. When we do that, it aligns with the Sumerian king list and the Uruk list of kings and sages, the Barosus king list, as well as the Egyptian king list, known as the Turin papyrus. It's the same thing. They list these kings and these ruling rulerships that goes way further back than 12,000 years. And so that's why we have to um, at least entertain the idea that our, our civilization and these cycles of catastrophes have gone back 50,000, 100,000 maybe 200,000 years of our history.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say, what what I like about the research that you do is that you link a lot of these tablets together. Like you just mentioned the Sumerian Kings list. You can link Atrahasis to that, which you can link Gilgamesh to that, which you can link the legend of Atana to that. And you even said the death of Belgains, right?
0: Yeah. And that's what's so exciting is that you take, you create this theory based on, on the evidence left behind, right? Like we just said, these cycles of catastrophes, and these kings that ruled for these lengthy amount of times, and then you go into the other other separate tablets, and you find the same king mentioned in a different tablet from a different civilization that talks about them, right? Because the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the, Assy- um, the Assyrians, and the um, all these different the, the ancient per- per- Persian Zoroastrian civilizations, all these different cultures that have come and gone, have carry down the stories of their ancestors in these cuneiform tablets and they've talked about these ancient kings and these bloodlines of the Anuna and these gods all throughout history and, and yet and we're sometimes we're choosing to ignore that but that's what's fascinating is that the last king on the Sumerian king list that it says then the deluge swept over and essentially destroyed all the cities that once existed that last king was known as Ubaratutu and his son was Untanapishtim, who wrote the Atrahasis. That's the, the religious figure known as Noah. Now, that king is also then discussed in the Death of Billigames tablet that, that in the Epic of Gilgamesh, tying the, this time period with the legend of Atana into these two distinctive time periods. The pre diluvian or pre deluge cities of the Younger Dryas that existed throughout the Fertile Crescent Mesopotamian area. And then, when kingship was re lowered again, the new cities and the new empires that emerged after that. And that's why we have to separate very distinctly these different time periods, because it says right in the legend of Atana, it states that after the old world was destroyed, Atana was chosen to be the very first king and the architect for the entire new world. And he was chosen because he had a certain bloodline to rule over the city of Kish. So Kish ends up becoming the very first city that they had to re-lower kingship, meaning civilization had to be recreated over again because those events were so destructive, they wiped out the entire civilization that existed
1: before. That's amazing. And what I was going to say, another thing I think is important that we need to address is that like, you, this isn't information from just like Zachariah Sitchin, like you've went to Oxford University, you've studied George Smith, Austin Henry Lair. I mean, you could tell the people like all the people that you studied, because there were faults in Sitchin, even though he he was a pioneer, I I think he was a great pioneer. But you, you went to look in other places for your research, right?
0: I did, because I wanted to become an expert on this. And in order to do that, I had to both be able to understand who the best translators were, and I firmly believe that the best translators. Um, I mean, I often mention, you know, Stephanie Daly, George Smith, Samuel Kramer, but there are there are a couple others as well that have truly mastered their understanding of ancient Sumerian and Assyrian cultures to translate these ancient tablets, and they. Uh, but their translations all coincide with each other and they mimic each other. And that's how you have correlation through finding um, other translators that agree on the same information. And that's why I put so much weight into those translations. I don't just read one translation. I'll read one translation from one expert and then compare it to another one and then find where the truth is by where the most experts have agreed on. And, Sometimes they even call out that they don't know what a particular word maybe means this or this, and that's where you have to get in and understand what that tablet is trying to say to try to to put the pieces together. Because a lot of these tablets are so ancient that parts of them have broken off and been lost, and so we don't have all of the um, translations for every section. Sometimes we've lost entire parts of stories, and we don't even know what they say, but oftentimes we can try to interpret what they would have said based on what came first and what came after and then what's shared by another tablet because usually these stories are carried on by multiple different civilizations and different tablets and it gives us an opportunity to fill in the pieces
1: yeah um, my last question for you is uh this is i always thought this was a fun one it, it, um when you talked about when enlil says to Enki, he says where you went you were supposed to break the chains to set us free. And that always sat with me weird. I I was like, what is that? And what did they, what did they mean by that? Because it seems like that could be something so much deeper. Like what, what do you think he meant by that? Like.
0: Yeah. So that's in the Atrahasis and he says, so Enlil's talking to Enki and he's mad at him. Okay. He's mad at him because he wants, he tells him that he essentially was in charge of, Humanity and their reality, and he says, "Where you went, Enki, meaning the underworld, where you went, you were to undo the chain and set us free." And now that is is something that is extensively talked about in the new book coming out, where I I break down all of those tablets and really get into what some of the other experts have believed, as well as what that should uh, could have meant based on our understanding of the Anunnaki. Now. There are two distinct possibilities that seem to have come up um, in my mind, or two probabilities of what that means based on everything I'm studying. A lot of people would jump on the concept of maybe that means manipulating DNA to undo the chain, the chain of DNA in terms of us and our reality. The other possibility may have to do with the creation of us. So it may be related. The idea is if you are if we try to understand these Anunna in a way where it's like a multidimensional being that's like some kind of a creator here, they come here. They seem to have gotten trapped in our reality, perhaps through karma, because karmic energy is very real. You can get trapped somewhere. It, and I think maybe it relates to the idea of this whole fallen angel concept that's in later religions, that we are basically, um, they were trapped here and the way out was through us somehow through the creation of us, allowed them to transcend and to become eternal beings and to, have to not have to be stuck in the domain of our reality. So it may have to do with, we may be that escape for them out of this reality somehow, in this karmic reality, because it states in a lot of tablets that these Anuna were coming here far before humans were ever created. That's what it is, especially the Numa Elish and others, it states that they were coming here and creating far before us. And so perhaps that's why they ended up getting stuck somehow in this reality. And then they had to create us as a way out. It's, it's, it's hard to understand, but I would like to read, I think we might get some answers here. I'd like to read, um, a short passage from the death of bill games. Now, this is a tablet that I don't think I've ever heard anyone ever talk about the death of bill games ever. Um, in, in any discussions or any experts to talk about this. And I think they should because the Death of Bill Games is um, it's a, it's a, it's an ancient tablet that came out of the city of Nippur in Iraq. So that's an ancient land that was part of the Sumerian civilization. And this translation was done by Samuel Noah Kramer, who is one of the, the best translators in the world. Now, I want to read some of this to give people an idea of, of how this might relate. Okay. So, for those who don't know, Bill Games was another name for Gilgamesh, which is what gets so fascinating about this, because Gilgamesh was the last of these ancient kings that came after this the deluge of a certain bloodline that came later. And he essentially um, was the last of these gods that was seeking immortality and had these this certain bloodline He was a giant that's why you can see depictions of him in murals holding this this full-grown lion that looks like a cat because he was one of these nephilim giant kings that ruled and he was in my in my research he may have been one of the last ones as well so this is just a piece of it and i just want to read this and then break it down for a minute because i think it's fascinating So I'm going to just read the beginning, get a little bit of a a background before I get into the parts that we're going to break down. So we have a concept of that. And this directly relates to the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's, it's, it's from that same story. So it says in the assembly, the place of the gods ceremonial, when the Lord Billigames had drawn nigh, they said to him while Lord Billigames sat down in this case, Having traveled each and every road, because he went on these great journeys. Having fetched that cedar, the unique tree from its mountain. After you smote Hawana in this forest. Having erected stele for future days forever. And a stele, stele are these giant, like a code of Hammurabi, these huge tablets that essentially have these codes and these rules that we find all around the world. We find them in the ancient Maya, the Aztec, the Inca, all the way through Egypt and into the Mesopotamia. So this was an important way to leave behind a certain message. He goes on to say, having founded temples of the gods, remember he was the king of Uruk, you reached Zayasudra, who was Untapishtim. Zayasudra was the name used for Untapishtim, the last king of Shurupak in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Having reached him in his abode. And we'll break this down after. You brought to the land the Mies of Sumer that were forever, that were forgotten forever. The commandments and rights. He goes on to say, the flood that destroyed the inhabited regions as well as all foreign lands. Now, bill of games should not be taken away just like that as in he's dying. He should rule in the underworld. That was the Enlil's advice that they gave Enki. And then they they go on to have a conversation. Enki answered on an Enlil. This is what Enki says. In far off years, after the assembly had made the deluge sweep over so that we could destroy the seed of mankind, we said, in our midst, you are the only man living. Zaya Sudra is the name of humanity living. From that day, I swore by the life of heaven and earth. From that day, I swore that mankind will not have eternal life. Okay, that is one of my favorite passages from any tablet. And because it has so many crossovers of other tablets. Now let's start just to break this down from the beginning. In the assembly, the assembly is essentially the council of 12. It's the royal Anuna that had an assembly that they were essentially discussing and determining the fates, and they, they, taught, they called them fates, the fates of humanity. They decided everything, and they ruled through these royal centers on earth, like Eridu and others. They talk about how Bill went on this. Billgames, known as Gilgamesh, went on this great journey to, dis, to, to find immortality and to seek Zaya Sudra Um who is in the underworld that's what the entire story is he's already this immortal being in the underworld that no longer is physical at way after the the events of the deluge and then he talks about how you brought to the land the mis of sumer that were forgotten forever what does that mean remember how he was erecting these steles well the mis are these commandments and rights like it says for how a civilization is going to be created and ruled And it states that he brought them to back to the land of Sumer, and then afterwards, where they were forgotten forever. So something happened after Gilgamesh, when all of these, the kingship and these laws and rules had been forgotten and lost. And then it goes on to state, talks about how the flood that destroyed the inhabited regions, as well as all foreign lands, It's talking about a global catastrophe that wiped out civilizations all around the world. That's what that means. And then it goes on to talk talk about how the assembly had made the deluge sweep over. Just like it says in the Entrehasis, they had decided that they wanted to wipe out humanity by allowing or creating this catastrophe on Earth through a series of events that would maybe um, completely... Alter the the poles and shift all the tectonic plates, and maybe set off tsunamis around the world, and, and all the volcanoes, and all these incredible things that may be related to solar impacts, and maybe even cosmic impacts outside of that. And then it says, so they could destroy the seed of mankind. They wanted to start over again. They wanted our entire species to literally disappear forever, to never exist again. And then it goes on to state that. Basically, from after Sudra, Untapishtim, who was the last king of Sharupak, who had survived, that was a Noah figure, had survived, states that he was the last man that was ever given eternal life ever again. And then what happened? Human lifespans start going shorter and shorter and shorter until they're only about 100 years from thousands. Which exactly coincides to what the tablets state, within these being like immortal beings at one point and then becoming mortal later on. So I find I find that, and the death of Bill games is one of the ones that's going to be discussed in the new book. So I find that to be a fascinating way to connect all of these ancient stories and our understanding of the past to try to figure out where we've come from.
1: Oh, I agree, and I, what was just so interesting is you mentioned the MES. Like I remember. In the other story with Anana and Enki, she tries to get Enki drunk so she can take the MEs off him. So like they were always with these MEs like trying to figure out civilization. I, I guess those were like the blueprints for reality.
0: Yeah, it's exactly. They were like the blueprints for all of civilization. But more importantly, they also had energetic purposes as well. They seem to be almost like this, um, this set of sacred materials and tablets that had energetic ways where almost like the... Um, if you had them, you had all the power to rule over an entire area. If you had them in your midst, because it talks about how people used to steal them. Like you just said, other gods would steal them. They would lose them and then they wouldn't be able to rule any longer. So it's something just beyond like a set of stones, something far greater, or it seems to be maybe something almost like inherently um, relatable to something like the Emerald tablets or something related to something, some kind of an alchemical structure, material with these divine rights and commandments that if you have them, you can rule, you have all this power to rule over regions and civilizations. And that those, and it says in that though, that after Gilgamesh, that they were forever forgotten and lost, which is fascinating how you look at civilization dramatically changed after that and became very warlike. Um, After that time period, you started having empires rise up that just constantly were going to war with one another, and we forgot who we are. And that's how we ended up down this path after the Roman Empire, becoming a, a bit more of a warlike species that forgot our connection with the universe and the earth.
1: I, I totally agree. I, and my last question for you is, do you agree with like how Gerald thought and other people, a lot of people think that we're in a holographic reality? And how do you think that ties into the Anunnaki?
0: Well, it's a holographic reality because it's a reality that's not physical. So holographic meaning it's this non-physical reality that we can't see, really see or touch, but it exists beyond that. And in that way, because our we're, we're defined to our five senses and because we live in this, this reality where we can just see the seven colors of visible light, centers, um, visible light spectrum, we are very limited to understanding so much of the spectrum outside of that. And even seeing reality and any of the components that make up for it. And so the, the holographic nature of it is that we, we live in basically like super string theory talked about how it's just the vibrating strings of energy that define all of reality. And everything can just be defined into vibration. And that we, um, because we don't see that or feel it often, that we really do live in like this holographic nature of reality. And that we often don't even know what we're doing here. We're just sort of existing without really knowing our true purpose.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds that sounds about right. Um, well, I don't have any other questions. Is there anything else you wanted to go over before we um, finish up for tonight, or do you just want to give your website and stuff? Or
0: yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll just give people some updates. Um, really, a lot of very exciting things coming up for um, in the in the near future. So again, the Epic of Humanity, a two-year project, is finally releasing next month. Billy Carson and I, um, we're picking covers right now and finalizing everything inside. And then we're going to be going on a whole bunch of speaking tours and different things to promote that. Um, give a shout out to Fifth Kind with um, with everyone on over there to so we can basically, uh, you know, Tony and Paul, go on and talk about that on there. Where I have a, a number of other channels we're going to be going on. And then Billy and I uh, and Jay Campbell are going to be going to Peru and Bolivia at the end of November. To oh, wow. do like an ancient megalithic tour of a lot of you know, Machi, Machu Picchu, Sasuke Waman, Oye Tetambo, over to Lake Titicaca and Pumapunku and um, Tiwanaku to do an, an ancient history megalithic tour. It do a ton of filming. We're going to do lots of videos and get a lot of content. And then um, I want people to look forward to me finally being presenting at the conscious life expo in los angeles in february so if you want to come make sure you get tickets to be able to come meet me and see me and i'll be doing a whole presentation on some some really cool stuff there so you know look forward to a lot of those other exciting things coming up and then um, i have a uh something else potentially happening in december that i hopefully can announce at some point coming up too so
1: your own ancient civilizations with gaia right
0: I, I was on uh, many, many episodes of Ancient Civilization Season 4 on Gaia, and I also was a, I played a big part in writing and helping design those episodes, so I hope people can check that out. And I have we have a number of new shows. Billy Carson and I just did an Open Minds on Gaia with um, Regina Meredith, and there's another Beyond Belief coming out with me, um, and so... I'm going to be going on coast to coast AM with Billy once the book is released. So we have a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to be doing in the future that everyone can look forward to. So um, I really appreciate everyone supporting my work. And um, Rob, it was, uh, it was great to talk to you. I know you, you have a, a, a very good knowledge base of this that makes it easy to be able to get deep, really deep into some of these topics.
1: Thank you that's, that's awesome. That's a real compliment coming from you because I really look up to your work. I I've looked up to it for a while. And like, I love the fact that you're succeeding and you like, you're kind of like living out your dreams. Like, you know, I, I, I just like, I love to see that because you deserve it. All the work you put in from your, your early videos to now, like you are just becoming like a a mastermind in our, in our, in our field, you know, thank you so
0: much. I I really appreciate that's Such a, that's a wonderful thing to say. I, I thank you for that. And could you want to tell everybody your website? Sure. My wedge, my website is thestageoftime.com. And my YouTube is Matthew LaCroix. And guys, don't forget, we have an Instagram um, um, title we've already established for the Epic of Humanity. And we're going to have a website as well coming out. So look forward to all that. And I guess one more thing I want to mention that I forgot is if you've been watching Billy Carson's network, I have a big sh- my own show coming out in his network next month called Mystery School of Truth that he put in, uh, we both put a lot of effort and work into, and so I I can't wait for that to be released because that's a pretty high budget show where I did all uh, I was the I did it was a solo show that I did all a whole host of topics and all, and all kinds of graphics and it's going to be really cool, so check that out. Um, and you, and, bet uh, you have the
1: Coders of Truth on there too, right?
0: Yep. Season one of Decoders of Truth is is now out fully. And then we're going to be filming season two of Decoders of Truth in Peru and Bolivia in November.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this and we'll have to do it again.
0: Thanks so much, Rob. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Have a good one. Thanks.